Hello, and welcome to Stuff Mama Forgot to Tell You. I'm Monica Francois Marcel, a Gen X founder, entrepreneur, and baseball mom based in Chicago. And I believe that if we're very lucky and work very hard, life will be long and it will be messy. So to help us with the mess and provide tips for longevity and joy in what lies ahead, each episode, I'm borrowing either the mother of a friend or a trusted mentor that I greatly admire. This is a diverse group of women who've been there and done that, and you are going to love their stories. My own mom isn't here anymore, so the stuff these women share is precious to me, and their cross-generational pearls of wisdom are just what we all need. I'm so excited for you to join us, so let's jump in. Hello, Julia Sai. It's my great pleasure to be able to spend this time with you and interviewing you. Thank you so much for being here and being a part of our project, Stuff Mama Forgot to Tell You. And I just couldn't be more pleased. I've known your daughter, Deb, now for, for years. And I know a little bit about your story, but I can't wait to hear more about it. And I just want to thank you and welcome you to this conversation. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled. And so let's get started with a little bit about your, your story. So if you think back to, on what you've done with your family, with Deb, and, and um, you know, I hear a little bit about your grandchildren and other things, I want to know more about you, Julia, and I'd like to know a little bit more about when you look back on your life, and we'll talk more about looking ahead at your life, because I know you have a lot going on still. But when you look back, Julia, what are some of the things that you're, you're most proud of or maybe you're most surprised by that you've been able to achieve. Tell us a little bit about your story and, and hone in on those details, if you wouldn't mind. All right. For me, I always feel that my I am have an abundance of love that I'm always eager to share, whether it be with my husband, with my own family, with my children, or in my neighborhood. And so I make sure I try to reach out to people, even like going to the grocery store. When I leave, I I wish people, (laughs) the cashiers, a good but a happy day and so forth. So I have no problem talking to strangers. In fact, when I take a walk, they always say, you can never walk straight if you're with Julia. You just double the time and that's your estimate. So that is something that I really like about myself. And I try to do that every single day. That's amazing, right? Is that, uh, first of all, that's a great tip that if we go for a walk with you, we should plan, it's going to take twice as long. And I'm okay with that, especially in this uh, post-COVID quarantine era. I'm an extrovert, so I I love getting to meet new people. So I'm going to have to take some walks with you. So one of the things then that you're talking about is all the love that you bring to all these relationships. That's just, you know, outstanding. And can I ask you, if you think, where did that come from, Julia? Do you think that's just natural to you? Or do you think that's something that you kind of learned along the way? Tell me a little bit more about where all that, all that pent up love, you know, how did that become such a big part of your life? You know, I was born in China into a relatively comfortable family. And being the middle child and the second girl in the family, I was basically raised by, I call her kind of a mom substitute. Okay. But she was actually helping the family. She left her own son in the country in the country because she needed the money to send back to support the rest of her family because her husband just left her. 
So she was a very, very smart lady. And she basically took care of me. Everywhere she went, she would take me with her. And she would be so fast that she would get all her chores done. And then she would go visit the people of her level, basically uh, people helping other pe- other families. And, and there, was, there was a farm that she would take me to. So I learned a little bit of a compassion uh, because of her. And then also I saw how hard they worked. They had to work so much harder than anybody else. While my family, you know, my mother and, and my relatives, they were just like casually you know, get themselves ready, looking good, and then go visit each other, play mahjong or whatever. So I just had a lot of respect for those who worked with their hands and and how generous they were to each other. And that's where I think I basically learned compassion and love for others from from her. That is, you know, so compelling, Julia, because we often forget that mother figures or, or women in any form, you know, as they come into our lives, can have such an impact, right? And what you just shared is so beautiful about the impact. Do you think that this mother figure of yours, does she have a name, by the way? Can we name her? What did you call her growing up? We call her Ame. That means little, they call her sister. Okay, okay. Everybody calls her Ame, so I call her Ame Paul. Ame Paul, that means grandma. Grandma, with a little respect. (laughs) Do you think that she knew how much uh, she meant to you? Do you think she knew the influence that she had on you? She did. She did. Even when when Debbie was first born, I sent a picture back. back, And she right away told my mother to tell me. Um, I was too close to to, to, um, Debbie's face. (laughs) If if Debbie looked at me, her eyes could get crossed over. So she was teaching them. Yeah, she was on top of everything. So she has lots of advice that she gave you along the way, even yeah. even years yeah. later. Yes, and then when we when the communists came, we had to leave Hong Kong and took a train to. I mean, we had to leave China and took a train to Hong Kong. My father had already gone to Hong Kong, so my mother took my brother and my sister, and they had a cabin, but there wasn't enough room for me. So Amoy Paul had a bed, just a, a bed in uh, in third. Um, Level three, not right. not this. So I stayed with her even then on the train. So it was a three days uh, journey. And so you spent some time in Hong Kong. How old were you when you immigrated to the United States? I was eighteen when I went from Hong Kong to um, Texas. Texas. Yes, Texas, and I went to a, a Catholic university called Incarnate Word University. But because of my visa problems, I arrived on what they call Goosey Night, and I was horrified. I saw toilet paper on trees, oh, boy. people dressed up funny, and people telling you, trick or treat if you don't give them candy and stuff like that. And I thought, what have I gotten myself into? But then it just turned out to be such a, a special holiday for the Americans. I'm trying to imagine what that would have been like for you, uh, coming into everything you went through to get, you know, all the way to this university town in Texas. And then you arrive on that night with all of these really (laughs) silly, wild traditions. Uh, That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. What did you study when you were in university? You know, I always had been kind of a more or less 
a dreamer, but it was expected that if you have a brain from you'd go for science. Okay. So I actually studied chemistry. Okay. That was my first degree. Uh, my first degree was in chemistry. And what was your second degree in? My second degree, uh, well, I was very fortunate. Um, with my chemistry, I started working for the labs, first Lawrence Radiation Lab in Berkeley and then at Columbia. And my second degree is actually in uh, nursing. And then because of my nursing degree, I started working for Rockland Psychiatric Center in Rockland County, New York. Okay. That was the time when we had the subway pushers, wow. you know, the, the, the mentally ill person pushed somebody into the subway. Yeah. And that person came to, to a Rockland Psychiatric. I was just working, like doing data entry and stuff like that because my kids were small. Um, Debbie was maybe about in first grade and my youngest son, my son was only four years younger. So still in, in nursery school type of thing. So I ended up working just to data entry. And then I got the opportunity that for me to go work in the psychiatric field. And, and I seemed to relate to the patients quite well. And chances, uh, opportunities came and I was asked to be the team leader for a psychiatric unit for the mentally ill and the severe um, challenged from New York City. And that was how I became taking care of, um, I, I'm like all over the place here now because of my history, but basically I became very involved with the mentally ill and substance abusers. Now, I want to come back to that in just a moment. I want to pick up on something that I didn't realize, Julia, that we have in common. Um, I went to Berkeley for graduate school. And so I know uh -huh. those labs very well out there that you worked in. Oh, and um, I yeah. actually studied engineering. I, I was more of an engineering girl than a science one. But uh, we also have some of those hard subjects in common. So look at that. I didn't realize that we had that. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I found that studying engineering and science made me really good at a lot of other things I did, including working with people, because it just helped me understand more about kind of how the world works. I don't know if you found that as well. I absolutely agree with you because you learn to be very, very precise. Yes. You cannot just like, oh, oh, let me just fudge it. You, you just can't. <laughs> you know, the, the values coming out, the results, the numbers coming out are, yes. are so important. Yes. So you go into details and then you and you, you learn to be extremely precise. And that's, I think, taught me to be very responsible in whatever I take, take up in life. If it's your goal, then you're going to do a good job of it. And the only one that can do a good job is you reminding yourself you need to do a good job. And so your children were able to see you then uh, getting these degrees and, well, maybe you already had the first one before the kids came along, but they saw you working at an early age. You know, we often talk about working mothers. I know your daughter is an expert in that. <laughs> it sounds like you are because she learned it maybe from you first. And so I'm curious, what were some of the things in those early years um, and then later when, you, when your kids left home, what were some of the things when you look back? that you did for yourself that you think were important, Julia? Um, in addition to the career and, you know, to having the children, these days we talk a lot about well-being and about how to sustain ourselves, right? And clearly you're doing a lot of things right. So I'm curious when you look back, especially for people, you know, that are, I, I still have a 12-year-old at home and I'm thinking about 
not only the relationship that I have with him, but just, you know, how I want to set myself up for the future to be a great, you know, long-term parent for him. What, what advice do you have for, um, for working mothers? I would say you try to be involved as much as you possibly can. And I remember that uh, my husband and I, he, he was also a very, a very loving, caring person. And the children like to play sports. And when they play sports, it didn't matter whether they win, lose, or what. Every game, we were there. So I don't think I missed any of their games, including the, uh, some of these, my grandchildren, the girls. The boys are in Pittsburgh, so I, I couldn't go there that, that often. But if, when they had tournaments here in our area, I, I went. Basically, between the two girls, basically, I could say I was there at the game every single day and to cheer on, and I would make sure that they know we're not there just for them to win. I would make sure, at that time, we were bringing oranges, and I made sure every game <laughs> I was bicycle with the oranges, and uh, iced them and brought it for the whole team. Aww. So they, they got used to seeing me there, and they knew I was there for them. Win or lose. Amazing. Uh, and then other, and then when I first started working, I, you know, my son was in um, kindergarten, first grade. I worked at Rockland Psychiatric Center as a part-time worker doing data entry. Okay. But then I told him, I said I had to leave at three every day. Uh, you know, either that or I quit. You know, I. Uh, but they were very, very um, worker friendly. They say whatever. Whatever you can come in. So sometimes I would go in on a Saturday to make up the hours. So if there was no game. So that was what I did. And then throughout, even uh, with with uh, Debbie's children, Kennedy and Kaylee, I'm there. I was there. <laughs> in fact, nowadays, you know, when they first started, this year, one of the parents texted me and said, we miss you at the stand. When are you coming back? <laughs> you have a very specific role and a brand, right? They remember you very importantly. Yes. Let's talk a little bit more about what some of the things are that you learned working at the, the psychiatric center, if you don't mind, Julia. I'm curious, when you look back now on those years, I can only imagine how intense and powerful that work must have been. I'm sure it taught you a lot. Can you tell us one or two things that you think you learned from that part of your career? Yes, when I was told to take care of that particular unit, it was a, one unit where the uh, what they call AIDS, mental health AIDS, they would work. They would be the first hand staff on the unit, and I wanted to. Uh, and there were a lot of complaints. People didn't want to work there. It was dangerous and so forth. So one day I got permission from my unit chief, and that so I went in there. I showed up at five thirty in the morning just to watch how difficult it was for the staff to get them out of bed, get them all to go to the dining room together as a unit and come back, have them ready and, and take their medication. It was horrendous. So then I decided that just by telling them you had to get up and stuff like that wasn't good enough. And we were spending so much money uh, in uh, getting overtime for the staff. So I went to the chief of the hospital and I said, instead of you spending money on, on overtime, can you give me the money for me to work with the patients? And they, they kind of looked at me and thought, well, what are you trying to do? So I said, just give me some money. Give me $1,000 and you see. If, if things don't change, right. then you 
don't give me any more. So they gave me the allotment of the $1,000, and I called a meeting, and I told the patients, from now on, it's going to be every day when you get up on time, you will come to the nursing station counter and sign in your name. By the 15th, you've been getting up every single day on time. We will have a pizza party, and you can partake of the party. But if you miss even one day, you miss that turn. By the end of the month, if you stayed up, you know, with the rules and regulations, get up on time for the whole month, we're going to order food to come in for you. You're going to have a party. And that's how we started. They loved Chinese food. And I would have them individually come up to me and say, okay, what's your choice? And then they would pick and we would have it delivered. And at first it was on the unit. Then it became safe enough for me to get a room in the building downstairs where we put up the tablecloth and everything. Wow. And by the end of it, there was nobody that didn't go to the, to the party. And they would clean up, I'll say clean up time, and they would clean up the whole thing. No extra staff to clean up or anything. And that's how, and I show them self-respect. You need to respect the patients. Wow. And then the patients, you need to respect yourself and the others. So that solved the problem. And it was smooth going ever since until I left. What a fabulous story. Now, now, Julia, I know that, I know from your daughter that you've written a book. Um, is this kind of story in the book? Tell me what your book is about. Tell us all what your book is about. The book is basically for my, for my side of the, of the family. I am, I purposely uh, am not sharing it with my sister or my brother okay. because their viewpoint of their childhood was very different from me. I based it on facts that I experienced, not being judgmental or anything like that. I, I, there's no anger, not, nothing. But I just wanted to sh share with them what I went through. And basically, I wanted them to see fairness is so important. You can't disqualify somebody because of their number, of their ranking in the family because of the sex and, the, and the, uh, that kind of stuff. I want them to know my story, but not from uh, like a revenge or, or anything like that. Just to understand that how important it is that you have to be fair and see each other as individuals. And and basically, I'm, I have always been saying to them, even nowadays, when I when I look at what's going on in America with all the division and, and problems, I just say uh, every person is a child of God. And you cannot love God if you don't have compassion for them, want equal opportunities for them, we want justice for them, and so forth. So that's my principle of living, is to be fair. You learned that early on, it sounds like, and you've been able to take that beautiful philosophy and approach to life, Julia, through so much of what you've done. Can I ask you, what age were you when you wrote that book? Because I'm very impressed. People always tell me, Monica, when are you going to write a book? And I think, gosh, I don't know about writing a book. I'm not sure yet what I want to say or if I want to write one, but you've written one. Tell me, when did you write one and what made you, was it hard? No, it wasn't because it was just telling Telling it is, you know, I mean, um, it's it's just a small book for my family. So, sure. only, so it's 
well, nobody's going to judge me for that. In fact, I'm still looking for pictures so I can add to it. And then I'm going to take to Staples and say, can you make me so many copies, 10 copies, five for grandchildren and, you know, and so forth. Beautiful. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's just uh, a family history. And how long did it take you to write? When did you start it? It didn't take me long, about a, about a two weeks. I would wow. go back to it and adjust it and so forth and add on, or you know, some of the dates I couldn't remember, then I go back to it. So sometimes I even update it now, you know, when yeah. I think of something else, I go back to it again. And, uh, and also, fortunately for me, my father and I got very, very close. I was in Texas and I wrote a letter. I thought about him and I wrote him a letter to say, how much I appreciated him that all his life, he just took care of us. He took care of the family. There was, you know, he went to work and and, and uh, came home at that time. He was in textile. That was his field. And you had to really monitor the machines and so forth because if you have a flaw in the material, that whole um, amount would have to be considered second quality. So he was working like, he stayed at the factory six days a week, came home for one day only. So he really didn't do anything for himself. And then when I had a chance to write to him, he wrote back to me and said, for the first time, he didn't realize how much he did for the family and he had no regrets. He actually came to my wedding in Texas. He came to my brother's wedding. Both my parents came to my brother's because he's, he was the son, you know. So they both came, and then and then he alone came to my wedding, and uh, it was it was the most wonderful thing. We went to pick him up from the airport, and then he sat in the front with my uh, sister, and then he reached over his hand and he grabbed my hand, and my sister turned around and looked so surprised and said, "What's going on?" <laughs> because he, she didn't expect that. So I ended up having a very good uh, relationship with my father. My father's side, eight children, seven boys and one girl. The last younger one uh, is, is my aunt. She's still alive. And her daughter and I, we were having lunch one day in uh, Bergen County t- maybe two years ago. Two years ago. And we talked about what she knew about the family, what I knew about the family. And I said to her, you know, I said, Chiver, this is not enough. We have to get together and talk some more. I said, who's <laughs> going to know about this family if we right. don't write it down? Right. So that's the book I think Debbie was, ta- uh, uh, was talking to you about. That is serious. That's a serious book. I want to write it because of my father, how he told me. And when his own mother died, so he was raised by his second, uh, second mother, adoptive mother. So that motivated us, and now we have every gen, you know, ev- uh, every sibling. Amazing. They wrote their own history. Wow! And we're all including it. We're still compiling that. That's we're not in the, not in the in the publisher's office. Uh, the I mean, not at Staples yet. I don't I don't know. I'm going to publish it, but anyway, we will have it all together, and every family will have it. In addition to your books, you know, to your writing and things, in addition to your grandchildren, what are some of the things that you're most looking forward to in the long life you have ahead of you? What's, what are some of the things that you do with your day when it's just for you, Julia, not even, you know, for others, but you, know, you mentioned something that I want to get back to. You mentioned that your father hadn't realized, you know, how much he had done 
for the family and that you mentioned he didn't take much time for himself. I'm wondering, do you spend much time on yourself? How do you take care of yourself? And what are you looking forward to in your future? I am a planner. And the the most horrifying thing for me will be for me to need my children to take care of me. Okay. So I have actually written a letter that I haven't given it to Debbie or my son yet. And basically it says, do not, do not ever take me into your home. I don't want for them to be responsible for me. So I have planned, I have looked and I've planned and everything. And long time ago, I had gotten myself long-term care insurance. So long-term insurance that would enable me to live in a housing type of support system. It's a senior adult, but with levels that if I need to move up, I, I, I can move up. And financially, I'm secure enough to be able to do that. And I have looked into that area and I found one in a nearby that in July, the end of July, Debbie and my, my son will be going to visit the place. I have looked at it. I can move from step to step. I want them to see how comfortable and why I want that place. Because even now, I'm not there yet. I'm not signed up with them, but they have monthly lectures <laughs> to learn about things, and I'm on it. Right. So I'm already connected with them, and I'm learning from them what I sh- I just like to learn. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing. And also to help myself healthy, keep myself healthy, I exercise three times a week in a clubhouse. Okay. I walk 2,500 steps a day. Okay. Unless in this heat, then I walk in the clubhouse or I go to the shopping mall and walk. 4,500 steps a day, three times exercise. And I also don't want to ever fall and not get the help that I need. So I got myself, I'll show you. <laughs> you see, I have this little pouch. I see. And I have this thing. I see. My medical alert. My medical alert. Okay. And I cut. I cover it with the cardboard, a cardboard so I don't accidentally <laughs> hit it. If I should fall, I have this to call for help. So I try to make sure I'm healthy and yeah. I eat healthy. You are a planner. I can see it, right? You have it all planned out, which is fantastic. Yeah, and, and I, I get uh, very involved. Uh, and my focus right now is I want people in the United States to be housing secure and food secure. Okay. It kills me. It kills me to think that children will be going hungry. I cannot stand that. That really bothers me. So I make sure every week I donate food. I donate to the church for food. I donate in other areas because of the summer, they don't have the schools to give them breakfast. Right. Right. So I donate this particular program called Mercer Street in our area where children will be brought in for their meal, for their food breakfast, and they have program for them afterwards and so forth. And the weekend, I am in the process of signing up to make peanut butter sandwich uh, for for, <laughs> for the bags for them to take home. You're busy. And I'm also going to get organized a group of my good friends to, do, to wrap um, silverware, plasterware. So that's something we can do that's not going to be, you know, heavy lifting and stuff like that. So I try to do little things that I can ha- do to help, but I try to also make it a fun project. 
Amazing. Well, you know, so you're an author, you are doing all this volunteer work, you're, you're still using that nurse knowledge that you have in terms of how to keep yourself healthy, your planning. Let me ask you just a couple more questions. One is, uh, I know that you took some notes when you came today of things you wanted to share. What have we not covered? Uh, Julia, that you want to make sure we talk about? Because I have one closing question, but before I go there, I want to turn it back over to you. What are some other things that you want to share about your story? I am so, so grateful for my children. And the best part is today, when I'm 80, they are still there for me. They are still there for me. What a blessing. And then one thing I also want to say, it's kind of cute, okay? My husband when we were getting married, my husband said, Julia, we've got to get married on a day that I, I can remember. I, it would be horrible if I miss an anniversary. So I said, well, what do you have in mind? He said, well, this coming, coming up, 8, 8, 6 times 64. We got married on August the 8th, 1964. So he said, I will never forget. And you know what he did? He passed away on 9-9. So I could not forget, even though the year was impossible. It was 2015. But he made sure he passed away on the day. And when he passed away, Debbie was there and he said he wanted to talk to us. And he said he was in such a peaceful state. He said, I've got to go. God is waiting for me and he's waited long enough. It's time for me to go. And I said, Peace. And he said, yes, absolutely. He said, it's just that I've stayed long enough. And so he said, I'm in good, I'm not in pain. I'm with God and let me go. And that was how he went the same night. Well, that's the most I think any of us can hope for is that when we do leave, right, is that we leave at peace, that we leave surrounded by loved ones and that uh, we've had what it sounds like you two had together, just an amazing, rich life, right? With all of these children and, and stories. Julia, it's been amazing getting to know you, hearing these stories, learning about your family, learning about you makes it clear to me why it is that your daughter is the powerhouse that she is. And I'm not surprised uh, now that I get to know you more about all the things that she does. I just have one last question for you. When you think about her, and the long life still ahead of her. Is there anything that maybe you haven't told her yet that you would like to tell her now? Or is there any advice that you might have for her in her years ahead? Debbie is very similar to me in the sense, sense that she's always been compassionate. And she has a lot, she she's, she's, tries to be very, very fair to other people with different opinions and stuff like that, but at, at a very intense level. And I hope for her that she will be a little easier on herself and not try to feel disappointed or ever judge herself as, as harshly as she does. So I wanted to relax a little bit, maybe pick up golf. I don't see her playing golf, but you know what? She can do something else. She can do pick a ball or something. I like her to, you will never change her. She will always be compassionate. And that's something you don't ever want, you know, for her to, to give up. 
and and realize also that between her and 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 Brent, my son-in-law, um, they have worked very very hard hard to make sure education is very important and also stand up for what they truly believe in and and give us give yourself and brand credit because when you look at your children doing well you get a sense of saying gee i must have done some something right you're making me cry with that advice because um i think that's something that a lot of us don't step back and do you know um I'm, uh, you're gonna get me emotional right now but just on behalf of deb i'm sure she loves hearing that from you right because uh I think a lot of women, um, myself included, at this age, we try to do our best, but I think we don't. I know Deb, and she does need to give herself a break, (laughs) right? She does need to realize all the amazing things that she's done. So I just appreciate you, you know, making sure that your daughter, out of all the things that you want to make sure that she knows, that she knows how how great she is and that she's kind and, and careful with herself. So that's really a beautiful message. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so with that, we're going to wrap up. Julia Sai, it's been a lovely pleasure getting to meet you on uh, Stuff Mom Forgot to Tell You. You've told us some beautiful stories, and I can't wait to read these uh, books that are coming out and going to get published, and I'm going to be one of the first ones to line up and and read them. So thank you, and uh, I look forward to having one of those long walks with you, and I'll plan twice as much time, as you said, so that we can get to our destination, okay? And thank you for being Deb's friend. Thank you. Appreciate it. 